0: People who are more grateful feel more positive emotions in general. They have lower blood pressure. They're more satisfied in their relationships. They're more socially appealing.
1: Welcome to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. I'm your host, Carrie Owen Pleats. Happiness, such a loaded word. We all say we want to achieve it, and we all have different definitions of exactly what does it mean. And so often, happiness can seem just elusive and fleeting. Today, we're going to talk about happiness and the fundamental role gratitude plays in helping each of us find daily contentment. I'm personally grateful to be continuing the conversation around gratitude from a previous episode, such an important topic. Today, I'd like to welcome Emiliana Simon-Thomas, Science Director of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, to help introduce research on how developing a gratitude practice can help to not only bring us more, but an enduring sense of happiness. Thank you for joining us today, Emiliana. Oh, I'm so glad to be here.
0: It's always a privilege to get to share this information and some of the practical insights with
1: people who are looking to improve their happiness in life. Yeah, why not, right? Life is just too short. So Emiliana, to start things off, can you help us understand some just basic definitions? Let's start maybe with gratitude.
0: Yeah, when scientists study gratitude, they define it in two different ways. One way, which is a little bit simpler, is that it's an emotion. It's a specific response to a particular situation. And it occurs when we feel like a goodness has come to us that has been the result of another person's activity or behavior or effort. You know, it's that moment, your your chest opens a little bit, you feel mm-hmm. your eyebrows go up, and you feel warm and safe and a little bit of an urge to either reciprocate or pay it forward. Mm. The other way that people define gratitude when they're studying it from a research perspective is that it's a disposition. It's a way of seeing the world. And one of the pioneers in gratitude science is Robert Emmons at the University of California at Davis, and he defines it as reverence for what is good. Mm. So it's generally seeing the world through the lens of what is it that is good in my life right now? And how can I reflect upon that and honor the fact that I receive this
1: goodness without having to earn it or work towards it? Yeah, that is beautiful. So, wow. Okay. How does gratitude relate then to happiness and our pursuit of happiness? But let's first start with the definition of happiness. Seems easy, but tell me. Yeah.
0: Well, a lot of people get this wrong. And so it is really important to share the scientific approach to studying happiness. Instead of thinking about happiness in the way that popular media tends to, which is that it's enjoyment and gratification of desires and immediate pleasure, Happiness in life is a way of being day to day. More succinctly, it's generally feeling good and also like you matter and what you do matters in the world. Mm. When we define it that way, it's inclusive of other kinds of experiences that are really important to our humanity, like feeling sadness when we face irrevocable loss, or feeling anger when we come across injustice or situations where people are being treated unfairly. These unpleasant emotions are really important to guiding the responses to those difficult moments that are truly inevitable, and they're part of what it means to live a happy life.
1: I love that you're connecting that in order to have happiness, there has to be sadness and anger. And I think sometimes people have this expectation when you're talking about happiness, that it's, well, you have to be happy all the time. So I love this definition. I just haven't thought about it that way.
0: If you go with the you have to be happy all the time, you end up in toxic positivity, right? (laughs) I've heard about that. Cheerful, enthusiasm, just every moment. But really what we know about life is that there are difficult moments, there are setbacks, there are losses, Mm -hmm. and we need to respond to those in an adaptive and a productive way. Happiness in life involves skills of resilience, skills of coping, willingness to be vulnerable and seek support and help when we are going through difficult times. So when we teach about the science of happiness, a lot of it has to do with learning how to navigate those moments in a way that will ultimately leave us feeling at the end of the day like, oh, you know, I do feel good and I do matter. And my role in my community my organizations is important
1: i do matter and i do make a difference that's so huge it's incredible so now let's take a step back and talk about your work and the mission of what i think is probably one of the best titles of a center is uc berkeley's greater good science center
0: So at the Greater Good Science Center, we track cutting-edge research that focuses on well-being and happiness. Our mission is to take the insights and the knowledge from rigorous empirical studies out of the really complicated, peer-reviewed scientific articles (laughs) and write about it in a way that any person with any kind of background and training can incorporate into their lives. One of the things that we focus on at The Greater Good is the particular role that our interpersonal relationships, our tendency towards generosity and supportiveness, and our sense of belonging and contribution to community plays in our well-being and our overall happiness in life. Because often happiness sounds a little bit more like, what can I do to optimize myself? How can I reach my goals, accomplish things? And those are important. And it's important also to get high quality sleep, to eat a healthy diet, and to get regular physical exercise. Those are all very important. But less attended to is the crucial role that our relationship. Relationships play in our happiness in life. And gratitude is this kind of
1: engine of relationship. Oh, I love that. Gratitude is this engine of relationship. So, Emiliana, you just got back from teaching a workshop on employee gratitude and happiness in the workplace. So, where did you start? First, I share the long list of findings without being exhaustive,
0: but gratitude is associated with all these very rigorous benefits. People who are more grateful feel more positive emotions in general. They have lower blood pressure. Their heart rate is slower. They feel less disturbed by... Sort of physical complaints and ailments like a skin rash or a cough or a runny nose. They're more satisfied in their relationships. They're more socially appealing. So if you're a more grateful person, other people want to get to know you more. That's just a smattering of the kinds of benefits that come with gratitude. And then I offer some very actionable ways to exercise your gratitude. The first way is to write about it. We can really get better at most things bye making a habit of journaling about that particular idea mm-hmm. and gratitude is no exception and some of the early studies assigned people into a condition where they kept a gratitude journal they wrote three things every day that they felt grateful for it's more than just oh I feel grateful for my cat but a little bit more detail a little bit more richness why you feel grateful for your cat and what your cat contributes to your life that introduces this feeling of goodness and how meaningful it is that you share space in that way so Gratitude journaling, one way to reflect and strengthen that muscle. Another way is to think of a person in your present day or past who somehow contributed to goodness in your life in a formative way. And write to that person, explaining what they did, describing the goodness that it introduced into your life is this powerful way to exercise gratitude. And the third is to get better at expressing it to one another in person Mm. because people are pretty good at saying thank you, right? Mm. Most people do pretty naturally say thanks a lot or hey, thanks, or they sign off their emails with thank you. And that's great. That's better than nothing. But we feel a stronger feeling of gratitude when we supersize the experience right in that moment. Gratitude one, two, three is a technique for expressing gratitude in a way that is more robust and powerful. One means that you describe what the other person did. Mm. Two means that you acknowledge the effort that they extended. And three means that you explain the benefit or the goodness that it brought into your life. So when we take like 12 seconds to say thank you in that way, the experience is much richer and more powerful It feels more uplifting and warm within ourselves, but it also is better received by the person who
1: we're saying thank you to. You make it super simple. You're highlighting how sometimes we minimize the power of just even a post-it note. I was talking to a staff member who was still talking about one of her coworkers who wrote a a quick post-it note and left it on her desk saying, hey, I missed you so much. You made my day the other day. And it was a simple post-it note. Yeah. And it's something that still sticks with that individual today. So it's never underestimate the power of the quick one, two, three, quick email, a quick text. Of course. So Emiliana, some people find it difficult to accept gratitude or positive feedback. Yeah. Right.
0: We've all had the experience where you have said thank you to somebody and maybe it's actually been even hard to say that. Thank you. And then the person says, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. And then we kind of feel a little bit meh right? Like, oh, that didn't feel that uplifting or heartwarming. So being more gracious about accepting other people's expressions of gratitudes toward us can be a practice. I think there's some concern that maybe uh, we're obliging someone, but all of that kind of inner chatter is not really worth much. And we'll get much more out of the whole exchange if we just say, you're welcome. All right. It was my pleasure. All these affirming and positive ways to welcome that exchange of gratitude can be important. It's great.
1: It also continues to encourage that level of gratitude and paying it forward. Well, yeah. And the risk is you get stuck in the thank you. Oh, no, thank no. You. Thank, oh, no you. thank you. Oh, no, thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's funny. So why not? Right? right? Why not? <laughs>
1: So now let's turn to our frontline caregivers, many of whom have been facing extraordinary levels of burnout over COVID and the challenges of the day in recovering from the pandemic and post-pandemic and a relatively new phenomenon called compassion fatigue. What is compassion fatigue from your standpoint, and how real is it from your perspective?
0: So compassion fatigue is a way to describe the experience that people have when they respond to suffering in a repeated and perpetual way, the emotional effort that goes into spending time face-to-face with other people who are suffering. But that said, when we really look closely at what compassion means— I think of compassion as an orientation to suffering that involves care and concern, but it's omnidirectional. It's 360 degrees. I suffer. Other people suffer. True compassion is noticing, being aware of, and responding to suffering within yourself and also to other people. And so I don't think that kind of compassion is depleting. In fact, if we're exercising self-compassion towards our own suffering, then we're going to take care of our energy levels. We're going to honor the fact that there's a moment at which we need to step back Take a few deep breaths and maybe ask for some support, right? I'm thinking of frontline workers who might have the expectation that the demand is just to go one thing after the next without ever stopping and honoring their own experience, their own feelings of pain and suffering. So I think that compassion fatigue is a misnomer. I think empathy, which is this system that allows us to understand one another's emotions, and it usually works through two paths. One is mirroring how another person feels, and another is adopting the other person's perspective or trying to understand the emotion that they're expressing. Empathy can become challenging in the sense that if we are only using that sponge part, that is a process that we call empathic distress. And in excess, empathic distress can be depleting. But compassion recognizes that another person's suffering is not one's own suffering.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
0: not me that is experiencing this pain and suffering. I am concerned because I am another human. And I feel compassion, but not because I myself am feeling distressed and suffering in my own right. So so yeah, compassion fatigue, I understand where it came from, Mm. but I'd like to say that compassion is indefatigable. And what we do to arrive
1: at compassion actually helps us be happier in our own right. Emiliana, you mentioned the analogy of the sponge. You can get to a point where the the sponge is saturated and that there's just nowhere else for the water to go, right, the empathy to go. But if maybe you translate, instead of it being a sponge, it's more like a breath, like to breathe it in and have it be a part of you. But you do exhale it. And so it's still you that remains. You can breathe in somebody else's challenges and have sympathy, but you can also release it instead of having it be something you hold. Is that that kind of a...
0: I think that's a beautiful metaphor and a really concrete way to think about how to introduce compassion in a way that's different than the sponge right if we are sponging internalizing or relating another person's pain and difficulty to ourself, we're not going to make it to compassion right, right. the natural response when we're suffering is to try to escape that to try to remove ourselves from that situation or and i do think this is a risk that many frontline and other healthcare providers face is to try to suppress it is to try to right. shove it down and i'm feeling this way but i don't want to i shouldn't I'm I'm not supposed to, right? It's not the right bedside manner. And that is associated with other health uh, issues, risks, right? <laughs> oh, cardiovascular yeah. risk. Like it, it's not so good to suppress. And so you're right, honoring the feeling that you're having, because you are having that empathic feeling, but you have a choice in that moment to render it as your own distress or to render it almost as like a superpower. This is my Mm. body responding to this other person's suffering. And it's a physiological arousal, but I can interpret this as what I need in this moment. So instead of it being a depleting state, it's actually I'm empowered. I have this strength, this extra energy that I'm drawing from this other person in my inhale. And I can exhale towards them deep concern and nurturance
1: that I have the gift of offering. I love that. You mentioned the gratitude one, two, three. How can gratitude practices help with burnout? You've touched on it, but anything more you'd want to share there? Yeah, gratitude has all these good outcomes. It can improve your
0: relationships. It has biological advantages. What's it actually doing? I think of three different mechanisms whereby gratitude is changing a person's outlook on themselves and other people in the world around them. When you have reverence for what is good, thinking of Bob Emmons' definition, You're dedicating attention towards goodness, right? You're thinking about what's good. Our brain doesn't really care Right. But it does keep track of frequency and relationships. So if the frequent thing that's happening is paying attention to goodness, that becomes the more available perspective to have. You become more optimistic. You see the goodness in situations that maybe are ambiguous or even mundane or neutral or even challenges. Because gratitude is about goodness that you haven't had to work for. It's not transactional. It is a way of not being self-focused, right? We're not ruminating on what we did before, whether people like us or not, whether we're likely to be successful in the future. We're not doing that self-focused thinking when we're practicing or experiencing gratitude. It's about something Outside of ourselves, right? It's recognizing goodness that's coming from outside. That habit of less self focus is beneficial and associated again with less of the ruminative thinking that can get in the way. And then finally, the interpersonal benefit, right? When we're feeling grateful, and this is a finding from neuroscientists who have put people into brain scanners and invited them to feel grateful right then and there. The pathways that signal pleasure and the pathways that are involved in social cognition, that is understanding another person, get more tightly linked. So our reward circuitry and our social circuitry become more in communication with another. So we walk the world with a greater sense of trust and partnership and supportiveness. Another finding is that people who practice gratitude, the pleasurable response increases So if you're practicing gratitude and we give you a chance to be really kind to somebody, you'll have this warm glow response in your brain. If you practice gratitude, exercise it, and then we measure your brain again, that warm glow response gets stronger. Mm. It's a more robust sensibility about how important at a neurobiological level our generosity and supportiveness in the world is.
1: Well, if that's not a strong argument for today's day and age to have more gratitude in our life and express more gratitude, I don't know what is. Meliana, on, on a personal level, can you share a story, either maybe your personal life or at work, where creating a gratitude practice has just reshaped a person's sense of well-being and maybe, you know, back to where we started, a sense of happiness?
0: Yeah, I tend to be perfectionistic. I'm right there with you. <laughs> As I'm sure a bunch of our listeners are, right? We're high achievers. We want things to go right. And when they don't go right, it's really easy to feel frustrated or criticize ourselves. And it's in those moments that I turn to gratitude. So, for example, if I'm working on a particular report and it's not coming out the way I want it to, I try to think, like, well, what am I learning? If it was easy, I wouldn't be learning from it. In many cases, I'll turn to a colleague and I'll ask how could I do better or how can we fix this? And it's so wonderful when our colleagues go, oh, I'm really excited about what you're doing and don't give up on it. Let me help you. I feel like those are moments where we can find gratitude, even when it isn't
1: the immediate feeling that we're in. And that's where I'd like to try to use it. I think we all can come up with an example of reflection about what is this moment teaching us? And also, when something doesn't go right, it makes you really appreciate when it does. Well, that's true. And actually...
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're a wealth of inspiration, Carrie. because there is another gratitude practice, which is reflecting on things that have gone well and imagining if they hadn't been there for you, Mm -hmm. right? Either opportunities that you've had or people in your life, something that you really adore. Like, What if it wasn't there? What would your life be like? And subtractive reflection reinvigorates your feelings of gratitude for the things that are there. I
1: love that. So hearing you talk about this, talking about gratitude, I love having my gratitude journal, but hearing you really brings this to life for me. And I was thinking about how do we incorporate gratitude in the care delivery of the inpatients? Yeah. Got my brain thinking about, you know, I'm like, give everybody a gratitude journal, you know.
0: I also think that there's a cultural opportunity where Mm -hmm. as a whole... The norm is of gratitude. So it's not just the obligation on the part of care providers to introduce or adopt more gratitude into their habits, but also Kaiser, we're a grateful organization. Patients, you know, are are just going to more readily and easily... Express gratitude towards the nurses who are coming in and waking them up in the middle of the night for saving their lives. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's always a choice. Like we can be annoyed by what's not right and what's yeah. intruding on what we think is our comfort, or we can recognize that holy moly, I live in an incredibly privileged part of the world and I have access to this cutting edge technology and medicine. So you yeah. know, I think there are cultural opportunities, and it is it's kind of walking the talk, setting the the norms, modeling, Mm -hmm.
1: all of that makes a difference. The beginning of a lots of conversation. I'm really excited about your work with the Greater Good Science Center and excited to maybe look how we can partner together in the future. Emiliana, I would be very remiss to not express my sincere and utter gratitude on behalf of Kaiser Permanente Northern California for spending a brief moment of your beautiful day with us and for sharing the history, the science, the research around gratitude and happiness. And if it helps one of our team members to think about a really tough day in a different way, we've achieved our objectives. So thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Well, Carrie, I'm sure you have a long list of extraordinary human beings doing really important work who you could talk with, but it means a lot to me that you took the time to reach out to the Greater Good Science Center, and I find a renewed sense of purpose getting to share these insights and these scientific findings with people and the hope that they'll be able to apply them in their own lives.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you to Emiliana Simon-Thomas, who is the science director of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and look forward to many more conversations to come. Thanks again for joining us. You're so very welcome, and it's an honor. I strongly encourage you to check out the show notes. You know, that text below the podcast where you can find the links to the Surgeon General's report and links to free courses offered by the Greater Good Science Center for folks who want to take the next step. I also invite you to share what's on your mind, ask a question or suggest a topic or guest. Send it to at kp.org. And whether you're listening on your commute or during a down moment, keep those comments coming. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente. I'm Carrie Owen Pleats, and we'll see you next time.